Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. It's Friday, and that means it's time to dive into our Friday News Roundup segment where we break down the biggest local news of the week. Fierce debates over spending during the pandemic and the future of police in Chicago schools. With the police accountability protest outside so loud that it could be heard inside on the Zoom City Council meeting. A watchdog reports the city's missed more than 70% of its deadlines for overhauling the Chicago Police Department. The Illinois Supreme Court says old Chicago police complaint files should be preserved. And the mayor also blasting the Chicago Teachers Union today for what she calls a racist and deeply offensive tweet. Some of the voices in there, the state's public health director, Dr. Ngazi Azike, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I've got two of the best joining me now to talk about these stories. A.D. Quigg reports on government and politics for Crane Chicago Business. Hi, A.D. Hey, Justin. Also with us, David Greising, president and CEO of the Better Government Association. David, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Justin. All right, so let's get into this. I think we start with today being phase four, and uh, this is something that was long awaited. It was at the end of, I think it was just last week that uh, they announced that it was going to be on June 26th. This is uh, a big story that that there's been a lot of, of question and concern and also, you know, some contradiction juxtaposition to the fact that we're opening the state up at a time when the rest of the country is going through some massive increases in coronavirus cases. Well, right. Uh, We're seeing big increases in some of the states that weren't necessarily following the kind of discipline path that Illinois has followed. Texas and Florida come to mind, of course. They've seen a big growth in cases. Some of the states like New York and Illinois that have been uh, quite uh, scrupulous about closing businesses where people have adopted the idea of wearing masks and staying away from each other as much as possible. We are seeing actually a, we have seen a decline in recent weeks, a leveling off lately. And it remains to be seen as things open up beginning today, uh, whether we begin to see a little bit of an increase, which would be expected as people get out and interact with each other in public very uh, more than they yeah. have been lately. 80, we're talking about social gatherings limited to what, under 50 people? Is that the idea? That's right. Indoor gatherings permitted in groups of 50 or fewer, outdoor 100 or fewer. Um, In Chicago, most places are limited to 25% capacity limits. That includes huge places like museums and zoos that are kind of starting to open up and non-essential retail, gyms, stuff like that. Of course, we still have businesses that are still just starting to recover from uh, civil unrest and looting from earlier this month, $20 million in damages overall. And then, of course, there's those worries about what we're seeing uh, across the South. And and since Monday, both the city and the state have seen slight upticks in cases. So the, the city had 94 cases Monday, 271 yesterday. Illinois had 462 Monday, 894 uh, yesterday. I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on those. That, that's, a, that's an important number. I mean, just to see how that was seemed to be trending down. You know, every day we're seeing it going down. Now it's going up. It's still pretty low at 800. But still, I have a clip here of Governor Pritzker talking about that exact thing about Sort of the idea of of opening while there's a surge in other sta- in other states. Look, everything that we've gone through over the last three and a half months um, has led us to this point where things are going 
well and in the right direction. And it allows us to gradually open our economy and to do more, have more activity and so on. Um, but I'm not afraid to move us backward to the things that we've done in the past. I, you know, you can, each one of these phases has aspects of it that we may need to return to. This is this is a tough time to be someone who is an elected official who has to make these decisions. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of, jeez, uh, a lot of concern uh, early on from the other side of the aisle on how, whether or not Governor Pritzker is doing the right thing to shut down the economy. And now, you know, even even though we're moving to phase four, you heard in that clip, he's not above saying, well, the, the numbers say we got to go back to phase three. It's tough to be the governor right now, uh, David, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is tough. And I think he's done a pretty good job of, of taking kind of the judgment calls out and setting very clear parameters by which uh, the state needs to make these decisions. Specifically, in his case, he's really keeping a close eye on the positivity rate. That is the percent of tests that turn out to be positive. He's got it down to about 3% statewide. It's more like 5% within the city, city limits of Chicago, which isn't surprising because in Chicago you have such a dense population that that it's not that surprising it's higher he's keeping an eye on that these these are called gating mechanisms steps like this like an increase in hospital admissions is another thing the governor is keeping an eye on reduction in hospital capacity or an outbreak in a specific region of the state which he could if he chose apply different parameters a part of the state could remain in in phase four the revitalization Mm -hmm. phase and a part of the state could be told no you've got to move back to phase three. He's left that option open to himself. So he's created a system that has a lot of options. But you're right. At the end of the day, he's the one responsible. And we've seen many politicians across the state more than willing to point a finger at the governor, tell him that he's overreacting, tell him he's doing the wrong thing. And he's got to take the heat for that. Yeah. A.D., it's it's such an interesting moment, too, because other state governors, and I have to say, <laughs> such a strange political move, but they will they'll come out and say, oh, we're having serious problems, but we're not going to tell you to lock it down. But maybe right. you should. But we're not going to tell you. Like now, everyone is just kind of parsing. They're right. moving That's back and forth. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, seeing, I was reading old headlines of what Florida was up to in mid-May, and seeing some Bloomberg opinion stories, kind of heralding Florida for trying to open things again to rescue their economy. And everyone is obviously reading those now saying, gosh, that looks bad in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to is, is looking bad in retrospect or good in retrospect. The, the governor of Illinois, there's going to be political pressure. But if, if these numbers continue to surge around the country and also in Illinois, do you really think we're going to see him pulling back uh, and saying, you know what, we're going back to phase three? I mean, he has the excuse to say it's just all about the data. You know, he does have the power to do so, and he's shown the willingness to do so. He's taken a lot of heat, and he seems to recognize that if he were to do something like has happened in Texas and Florida, the math is what it is. These epidemiologists know what they're talking about. They know how these diseases spread. And and one of the things that's interesting is some of the data is showing that an increased incidence among younger people. Younger people are the ones who are the first to get out, to go out to the bars, to go out to the beaches and to violate the separation rules that are applying still, even when these facilities are open. And the increased numbers in the younger population shows that when you do open up, you're going to have people behaving in a more risky way than you would like. This governor, I think, does have the wherewithal to say, no, we're going back. We need to go back. And he's, he'll, he'll be supported, by the way, by the mayor of the city of Chicago, yeah. who's been a hardliner on this as well. And so they have political cover with each other. As long as they stay in lockstep, they're probably in, in decent enough shape. Yeah, I was going to say, A.D., <laughs> Chicago also moved into phase four. We, I forget this even happened. This is how fast the news moves. But it was the lakefront in the 606 that reopened on Monday. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was that was a huge story and a, and a, a milestone because, of course, all the memes that came out when she locked down the lakefront. Uh, of course, I'm talking about uh, Mayor Larry, Lori Lightfoot. What should we keep in mind about phase four of Chicago's reopening plan? I think how closely people stick to it. Um, we're, of course, going to see a bunch of pictures of what it looks like when people are out at, at bars and restaurants, whether they're wearing masks or not. What bars and restaurants and other attractions decide not to open because they don't want to risk it or they can't protect uh, their own employees. And then there's the budget impact. Um this is going to last for years and years. It's not specific to phase four, but um, we've already kind of forgotten that the city of Chicago has a $700 million deficit for this year. Uh, maybe Such a billion. A kill lady, I'm sorry, guys, but it's bad. And you know, those budget impacts um, affect what city services are going to look like. County officials also say they're expecting a $410 million gap for 2021. Cook County runs hospitals and clinics across the county. I'm nervous and expectant about what the city manages to cut um, from its own budget, but also um, what kinds of taxes they might raise on people who are more economically unstable than ever. It's, it's going to be a, a tough situation for any of the incumbent uh, officials, but it's going to have to be a combination of both, right, David? It's going to have to be more taxes on the people that live in Chicago and the state of Illinois, and it's going to be service reduction. Well, the trouble with more taxes, when when you talk about, say, retail-type taxes, uh, when people aren't spending money, raising taxes doesn't do you any good. Uh, The one untouchable so far for the mayor has been property tax increases. She is determined to get through her first term, at least, without raising property taxes. And all eyes are on that decision because to close the kind of budget gap that A.D. is talking about, you don't nip and tuck your way to closing a $700 million uh, budget gap with the city of Chicago. And so uh, whether she has to resort to a property tax increase, she continues to say she don't think she doesn't think it'll be necessary. Let's continue to watch that because that's the place where you can make a big impact pretty quickly. A.D., I, I know she ran a campaign saying that, you know, we don't want to do that with property taxes. That's obviously something that that is a last resort. But we are in unprecedented times. Is there cover? Is there political cover for uh, elected officials, especially the mayor of Chicago, to say, you know, we're going to raise property taxes because COVID-19? I don't know. And the other complicating factor here is uh, what Assessor Fritz Kage is doing to kind of completely revamp the way the entire county looks at uh, residential versus commercial property taxes. This is another big story that came out last week. Um, We finally have our tax bills for the northern suburbs and commercial rates went up 15 percent there. And that's the northern suburbs. That's not the city of Chicago, which the Chicago Tribune pointed out, might have the most uneven assessments, um, an underassessment of big commercial properties in Chicago, an overassessment of certain homeowners. So just the level of uncertainty around property taxes makes this kind of difficult for everyone. And I know city council is not anxious to raise property taxes on anyone. We talked to your colleague, Danny Ecker, and uh, it's amazing and startling how different the assessments are. And it's not in a bad way, meaning this is you know from one administration to the other. But there has been a real focus uh, uh, from Fritz Kage, the Cook County assessor, to to be more fair in the way that he assesses taxes. But that's going to, when the city of Chicago gets assessed next year, what's going to happen with downtown Chicago? Because those were almost getting uh, a free pass for years, David. I mean, that that was, you know, there that was the whole scandal that the Tribune put out about uh, what uh, former assessor Joe Berrios was doing. They're going to be taxed big time in a time when they don't have uh, tenants. A lot of people moved out. 
Uh, big businesses are going to say, why are my, why did I choose this city? You know, businesses like Boeing or Miller Coors and down the line. So there's a lot of impact on on what happens with that assessment. Well, there absolutely is, and there's a revolt going on now among the commercial re- uh, real estate community to the the changes that Fritz Kagi has put in place. I don't know what uh, ultimately the result of that will be, other than the fact that on top, this is coming on top of probably the bleakest real estate market that we have seen in recent years. Uh, Chicago had gone gone through a period of aggressive building, so there's probably an excess capacity. And the very nature of work is changing. Even as the state opens back up, we're talking about our offices being filled at 50% of what they used to be, even in a more fully open environment. And that means fewer people, you know, offices needing less space ultimately. And, And we're seeing already, we're seeing a lot of vacancies. And, and so when you then turn around and you try to tax these landlords more at a time when they're not taking in much rental revenue, they are in a tough position. What is being fixed, though, is the fact that most of the property tax burden was on homeowners, a lot of them in poorer neighborhoods. It was a very unfair system that these commercial owners benefited from for many, many years under Joseph Berrios. It's just that the fix is happening so fast, it's really hitting them at a, at hard at a time when they can ill afford it. Guidelines were set forth by Governor Pritzker to open up uh, schools and give districts in the state choices on how they want to do it. But the idea that they can go back to school in the fall, this is a big story. And and it gives the governor a little bit of cover because a district can decide whether or not they want to do that. But this was essentially a push to say, get yourselves ready to have kids back in the brick-and-mortar schools in Illinois. Absolutely. And, and what the governor also pointed out was that the brief experiment that we have had with virtual education has shown that being in the school is extraordinarily valuable. There's a lot of focus on equity uh, issues these days, and especially in some of the neighborhoods, the poor, more challenged neighborhoods. Uh, you have the digital divide, which, which excludes some people from being able to participate, some students from being able to participate, even if they w- would want to. You also had, as anecdotally and some of the evidence came in, uh, the fact that attendance rates were not very high. Even if they have Internet connections and have laptops at home, uh, students were not necessarily plugged in, not necessarily sitting in front of their screens. And even when they were, we're hearing anecdotally, they weren't getting a very rich educational experience. So the governor is taking that on board in encouraging the schools to find ways to get students back into the buildings, going to more flexible hours, of course, putting limits based not just uh, arbitrary new numbers, but also based on the spaces in their classrooms. You can't say, for example, okay, it's, it's good. You can have 25 people in all classrooms because you can't. Some classrooms probably safely can only hold maybe 10 students and the schools have to adjust. It's going to be really, really challenging, but I think everybody who's been involved in this forced experiment recognizes that getting students back in school buildings needs to be part of the educational plan going forward because the students will suffer gravely if they don't. They just aren't being as well-educated remotely as they are when they're in the school building. A.D., I was surprised to see uh, not everybody's on the same page. I I think there were some some a trepidation from the teachers' unions, both in the state of Illinois and Chicago, to say, listen, make sure we're protected. You know, if we're going to go back in, and, and, and I think also parents, to a certain point, are like, well, I'm going to believe it when I see it. I mean, it's not necessarily a done deal that everybody wants to go back into the school. Right, and even if you think about what restrictions are still in place in the city, 
playgrounds are still not open for the reason that uh, teachers are worried about too. Kids touch a lot of stuff. Kids touch each other. Kids yell and sweat and do a lot of running around. And not every school is uh, is equipped to have kids washing their hands all the time. And it'll be tough to get kids to wear masks eight hours a day. Teachers are are reasonably uh, worried about the safety of their own families interacting with so many people and bodies every day. Um, I know there were some talks about doing some days on, some days off, where uh, you might have half of your students at home doing e-learning, some in the classroom. I think there's just a lot left to be figured out. I know CPS has not decided. uh, They're surveying parents to see how they feel, to see what it might look like. And of course, we had the city announce this week that they're doing this big philanthropic-led broadband expansion because this crisis has just, like David said, demonstrated how huge the digital divide is and how difficult it is to do e-learning, but it also um, reveals how hard it is for so many kids to do homework at night in their own homes without basic internet access. Absolutely. Uh, And one last story, baseball. Baseball, Baseball. uh, Major League Baseball says the season's going to get underway next week. Spring training begins. You know, beyond the, the balls and strikes and all that kind of stuff, what I found fascinating about this was, first of all, just the idea that this is going to happen because more and more players are testing positive for COVID as we speak. But the idea that both the White Sox and the Cubs said, yeah, we could kind of see limited fans being in the stands. You know, there was, this, yeah, yeah that, that surprised me that they would say that. Obviously, there are, you know, as we talked about capacity issues, but they really feel confident right now that they could put butts in seats in either Wrigley Field or Guaranteed Rate? I would say the Cubs feel much more positively than the Sox do. Crane Kenny was on the score this week. He's the president of business operations for the Cubs. He said, we do see fans coming back this year, probably at 20% of Wrigley's capacity, which is about 8,000 fans. It's the same for Sox. Lightfoot is a huge Sox fan. She said, you know, I want to be back in the stands as much as anybody, but we don't have specific plans for how they're going to pull it off from either team. Um, The Sox basically said what I would say, that there's just so much up in the air at this point to plan on anything definite a month from now uh, is kind of crazy. Like you said, we're seeing plenty of players down in Southern states testing positive Astros, twins, Red Sox, Tigers, Mariners, who knows who else we'll find out about today. Mm -hmm. And the MLB put out all these rules this week for the season that make it not baseball-y. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) There's wet rags for pitchers. So they don't lick their fingers, masks in the dugout, no big communal food spreads, no saunas, fighting, spitting, tobacco, sunflower seeds, no dog piles, no yelling in the ump's face. Like, <laughs> I don't watch a ton of baseball, but that seems like a different baseball. I love it. That, that just if you don't watch baseball and you have that list of things that you cannot do, you'd be what sport is this? Uh, David, there's a really concern whether or not this is just some sort of, I don't know, pomp and circumstance, that there isn't going to be a season as, as, you know, we're seeing cases surge all over this country. It seems a strange time to try and get sports back online. Well, we can certainly understand not only that the leagues want to get back in, into business, but people, the demand for what they do is quite high. And even the sporting events that have started to happen, and we've seen, for example, the Bundesliga in, in Europe uh, go back, and they're drawing huge numbers uh, via television. So there are ways that these that sports can, can go without necessarily putting 8,000 people in Wrigley Field. I wondered when I saw that kind of what where – has the governor signed off on that? Because there's nothing that I've seen in the plan short of the full reopening that would indicate that that would even be following what the governor's yeah. program says. So there are a lot of uh, bridges that need to be crossed, starting with keeping the players and their families and the staff of the teams 
and the workers at the ballparks healthy. And that's going to be the biggest challenge, I, I think, ahead of everything else. And as we're seeing, as AD pointed out, we're seeing already that it's not as easy as the owners might hope it would be. Yeah. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset, uh, where we break down the week's top stories. Our panel today, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business and David Grising of the Better Government Association. Let's move on from COVID-19 to some other stories. Chicago Public Schools will keep their contract with the Chicago Police Department for now. It's now up to local school councils who will decide on how many resource officers will be hired. A weekend of murder and mayhem, the bloodiest of 2020. At least 106 people shot, 14 of them fatally, five of them were minors. Along with the spike in violence comes a new push by members of the police union to get cops on the street to stand down, even stay home. To basically tell officers to abandon their post, that is the height of dereliction of duty. That was part of the uh, what we saw coming out of this weekend's violence, the idea of this alleged blue flu text that was going around. AD, that's that's uh, something that has happened before in the Chicago Police Department. We've seen that is there is there merit to that story and and how is the how are the police and the police union responding so yes this was a text encouraging cops to call in sick we've heard these go around um especially after uh weeks of tough protests or um long shifts for officers cops have been on 12 hour shifts having their days off canceled um the FOP can't officially uh encourage cops to do this but they can say you know our cops are having a very difficult time they're working long shifts and we have to support them um, this time. Lightfoot, of course, called this stupid, called it the height of the dereliction of duty. And this is, you know, following that video at Bobby Rush's office of of cops lounging, which she also described as a as a dereliction of, of duty. But we're seeing this in other big cities that are dealing with ongoing protests. And there is this sense that officer morale is at an all time low. And, and I want to get I want to stay in violence here because the last weekend was I would say a wake-up call, and I know because in the summertime we'll get big numbers. But to, to think where we're at with COVID-19 and the fact that there were, uh, you know, we were coming off a lockdown to have a hundred shot, hundred plus shot, and and you know, some teenagers and a three-year-old. It was, it was just an awful look for Chicago. So much so that this morning, or I think it was last night on Fox News, the the president um, went on. I think it was Hannity, and he had this to say about Chicago. Chicago's an example. It's like. Worse than Afghanistan. Take a look at Detroit. Take a look at what's happening in Oakland. Take a look at what's happening in Baltimore. And everyone gets upset when I say it. They say, oh, is that a racist statement? It's not a racist. Frankly, black people come up to me, say, thank you. Thank you, sir, for saying it. They want help. These cities, it's like living in hell. It's like living in hell. David, AD, I'll start with you, David. What's your reaction, Chicago? Like living in hell. Well, um, President Trump, whenever he has a chance, uh, dumps on Chicago and his violence problem. Unfortunately, the city keeps serving him up opportunities to do so, as as happened again last last weekend. So th- that's uh, politics. Is it like living in hell? Um, I don't live there, so I don't know from personal experience. But when you do read about uh, McKee James, a three-year-old, being shot. Apparently, some gang members missed uh, his father. Um, it is almost unimaginable for people who haven't lived in or, or visited those neighborhoods. And I don't think Laurie Lightfoot would quite put it that way, but she certainly has focused her attention on the need to do something and on sort of the holistic approach, which is, 
a lot of this is because of lack of opportunity and a lack of hope in the, in the neighborhoods. And she's taking the long view. The trouble is the problems are happening in the very near term, right in front of our very eyes. And while David Brown, the new police superintendent, is also trying to take the long view, he's now coping with the fact that it's a danger that he has to deal with every single yeah. weekend. And the tactics that he talks about, de-escalation and things like that, aren't working so far. Well, and, I, and this was his yeah. first. This was his first triple-digit shooting tally uh, since he took over as Chicago's top cop. And I want to hear how he responded to it. Let's play that clip. Gangs, guns, and drugs, and uh, not enough time spent in jail for violent felonies. All right, he says that's what the contributing factors are. Ad, that sounds like the police superintendents of the past. I mean, that, that doesn't sound uh, a lot like what we expected from someone who was going to be taking an out-of-the-box uh, new look at uh, the troubles here in Chicago. Right. This is something Superintendent Johnson said a lot, that felons were being released too quickly from jail. It has a different aspect now because of COVID. Um, Mayor Lightfoot has blamed uh, kind of a pause in the criminal justice system during the virus. Um, they've also mentioned that there aren't enough active prosecutions going on and there is an overload of the sheriff's electronic monitoring system. So basically to keep folks out of the jail and from spreading COVID further, they've put more and more people on electronic monitoring to the point where in early May, there were so many people out on electronic monitoring Mm -hmm. that they ran out of monitors. It's taken on a different dimension than when Eddie Johnson used to say it over and over, but it is not living up to the explanations that people want to hear and the changes that people need to hear about to prevent more people from dying. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of is a, a nice transition right into the idea of police and schools. That was a big story this week as the uh, School Board of Education on Wednesday voted to keep the contract, the $33 million contract with the Chicago Police Department to keep police officers in schools, school resource officers. This was something that uh, protesters were asking for change or demanding the change. Uh, the mayor had said, she wasn't interested in the change, and she got her wish with a 4-3 victory. What is, what's your takeaway from this, uh, A.D., that uh, the contract will continue? So this is definitely not the end of the fight. Um, they have to – the Board of Education has to renew the contract again. Uh, it's a year-by-year intergovernmental agreement. Um, and then there's – the organizers with this are also going to go after city council. Uh, members introduced an ordinance earlier this month to cut off that contract as well. And I don't see them abating anytime soon. Um, There were hundreds of folks protesting downtown, dozens of kids protesting right in front of board president Miguel Del Valle's house during the meeting. It was a lengthy, emotional, hard to watch hearing. And people obviously had deeply felt concerns. But ultimately what what it came down to for the four that voted to keep the folks is that they, they want to be able to empower local school councils to make the decisions for themselves. And they want kids to feel safe. I'll be interested to see if more proposals come out about alternatives. The Chicago Teachers Union says, you know, if we get rid of this $33 million contract, we can go hire more nurses, social workers, counselors that might be able to get to the bottom of some of the issues that are leading to violence within and around schools. David, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the program yesterday. But for all the protest movements uh, and the issues that protesters are are demanding from Chicago's leaders after the the police killing of George Floyd, defunding the police, police in schools, taking down statues, even making Juneteenth a holiday. And I want to get your take on this, too, A.D. But it seems that the progressive politics and, and that movement has kind of been snubbed. 
and the way here in Chicago that they're, they're not getting many victories from this mayor. What do you what do you take away from that? The idea that that those demands are kind of being uh, cast to the wayside. Well, there are a couple things there, Justin. First of all, the, the mayor um, already had a problem with sort of the, the more progressive part of the city council, the Socialist Caucus specifically, um, before all these issues. And this has only exacerbated that. She has, in this case, for example, police in schools. She wants to keep the police in schools. It's very interesting as well, though. Inspector uh, Joe Ferguson he issued a report a couple of years ago that has not yet fully come to light or been debated or discussed much, in which he talked about some of the downsides of having cops in the schools. He said this becomes a path toward uh, students getting into the criminal justice system who might not otherwise wind up that way. The people on the other side of the argument say, well, you need this. You need the cops in, this, in these 70 schools that have police officers in them. You need them just to keep the hallways safe, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of gang activity that goes on in the schools and other things that merits having a police presence. This is going to be the defining issue as regards the defunding movement in Chicago. This and perhaps the training academy, where Mm -hmm. the city is slated to spend $95 million on that training academy, those are two areas where the defund police movement really have a specific issue to focus on. And this vote, which is due to come before the contract expires at the end of August, is going to be very interesting because the vote was so close this time around, 4-3, yeah. it's not that difficult to swap one vote. And the, the fourth vote that came in was kind of wavering as it was. So there's going to be a lot of pressure over the next few weeks on this issue. It's not going to go away. And the mayor is going to have to figure out for her own political purposes how she decides to handle it. And, A.D., I'll ask you the same question. I mean, it's, politically, it seems like the progressive movement or the political progressive movement here in Chicago is, is not getting what they're asking for. I mean, there's a a million ways that people can go after reforming the Chicago Police Department. But one area that I thought we would have some more clarity on, because it was in the mayor's uh, 100 days plan, was civilian oversight of the Chicago Police Department. Um, We still don't have a deal with the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability. And now we have uh, folks supporting CPAC getting more active than ever as part of this defund conversation. Council's most progressive aldermen are pushing for CPAC. That would dismantle a lot of our existing oversight structures of CPD and kind of start fresh in a lot of ways. Um, GAPA, like I said, was something light put supported but has stalled out since the spring. Um, Desmond Yancey, who was an organizer with GAPA, told the reader he felt completely betrayed. Uh, they don't have an ordinance, and they're not much closer than when they started. Here we are with another mayor who's failed to listen to the community, he said. And this is a group that was supposed to be working closely with the mayor to come up with a deal. This is going to play out in a number of ways, even from centrist folks, maybe is the right word, who just want to see the department at very least live up to what it's supposed to as part of the consent decree. And as we saw last week, the city is way behind on those requirements, too. Lots of news this week, and uh, we didn't get to all of it, but we got to a lot. And I appreciate uh, my guest, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business and David Grising of the Better Government Association for being part of our Friday News Roundup. A.D. and David, thanks so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Bye-bye. And that's today's Reset. If you like what you hear on the podcast, make sure you're subscribed and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin Kaufman. Stay safe this weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday for another Reset from BEZ Chicago.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.